Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I had a long-term relationship ending, not by my choice. I have an African-American foster son who's an adult who was wrongfully going to prison, went to San Quentin until eight months later, a federal judge let him out and said he was not guilty. But it was like, he came out a very different man. I was starting to lose friends. One of them named Chip, one of my five friends who committed suicide or took their life was named Chip. Very, very close friend of mine. I was running out of cash. So, you know, the Great Recession was in the early stages, but, you know, we were growing faster than ever before, but we didn't see the recession coming. And frankly, like, I didn't want to be doing what I was doing anymore. I was in my own prison in my own mind that my identity as the founder and CEO of Joie de Vivre, with all of the VIP status that came with that, I felt like I couldn't leave it. And, and I wanted to. And so I was having nightmares about cancer and car crashes. And then, lo and behold, I had my NDE. I was in St. Louis giving a speech because I had a new book come out. And after being on crutches giving the speech, I sat down to sign books and I, I just went out unconscious. And thankfully, I didn't feel flatline yet until the paramedic showed up. I was actually unconscious for five minutes, though. The paramedic showed up on a gurney, and that was the first of nine times that I went flatline. And, you know, they had to pull the paddles out and shocked me back to life. I was 47 years old. They had no idea what was wrong with me. Hello, friends. Welcome back to The Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. Today, I am super honored to be in conversation with a friend and one of my inspirations. His name is Chip Conley. So Chip has a really fascinating story. He disrupted his favorite industry three times, which is the hospitality industry. He acquired his first hotel when he was just in his 20s. And it was a huge gamble. It's a great story. Required him to deal with characters like Vinny the Pimp in order to get the hotel off the ground. And then he grew that one boutique hotel, which is called the Phoenix, and it's in San Francisco. He grew that into a vast hospitality empire, which which required him to wheel and deal and manage a staff of hundreds of employees. And then later, Chip ended up serving as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy in the early years when they were growing to the behemoth that they've become. And he's been writing books and many of his books have become New York Times bestsellers. Chip is a prolific blogger. Most recently, he is the founder of something called the Modern Elder Academy, and he's rebranding what it means to be an elder. And this is something that I am also honored to be participating in during the summer of 2023 in their programming. 
And in this conversation, Chip is going to talk about many things, including the life lessons that he learned from his military dad, why he chose the path of creativity over the path of making money after business school. He's going to talk about how he got the CEO of Southwest Airlines to mentor him in business, even though they never physically met face to face. And that's a really great story. He's going to mention which business book inspired him the most and how another book that he carried around in his back pocket helped him to find his calling later in life. Chip is going to talk about the crazy story of flatlining nine times in 90 minutes and what that near-death experience taught him. He's going to talk about how he connected with the founder of Airbnb initially and how the name Modern Elder was created. And of course, Chip is going to share the fascinating backstory of the Modern Elder Academy, which is his current passion and mission in life. And this conversation was jam-packed with many other awesome stories and insights about what it truly takes to live a life of purpose and why the only thing you need to take your next step is courage and self-belief. And I, I just think you're going to get a lot of inspiration from listening to our conversation. So let's get to it. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friend, the rebel himself, Mr. Chip Conley. Mr. Chip Conley, thank you so much for joining my podcast. I am very excited to chat with you. I think the last time we saw each other, was it at a Mind Body Green yeah, yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah. The last time we physically were like we're in the same space. Saw together. each other. Was that in Palm? Was that in Palm Desert? Or was that no? That was, that was in Arizona at that Dove yeah. Mountain place. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Yep. And yep, that, that would have been awesome. like 2017. Yeah, was, that was, was that prior 20, to modern? I think it was 2018. So I think it was. You had it just was, started. Just started, and it was pre-COVID, and mm-hmm. it was a different era. But yeah, I've all you know, I've always enjoyed your company. You and I are both people who are on a journey. And I enjoy people who are open to the sojourn. And that's why I'm here. Well, when we met, I kind of knew the broad strokes of your background. I didn't know all the things that you've you've accomplished and all the different scenes you've been in. So I'm really excited to unpack that. And I want to start with you growing up in Southern California. I believe, according to your Wikipedia, you were born on Halloween. What's that like as a child being born on (laughs) Halloween? First of all, it means that as you get older, you're used to dressing up. And I lived in San Francisco a long time. And Halloween in San Francisco is a is is like a national holiday, or at least a city holiday. I mean, for me as a kid, I think it meant that there was a celebration, a celebration and a weirdness. The weirdness meaning people dress up, they act weird, and people are celebrating. So in some ways, I think it was a beautiful thing. It was great to have birthday parties because everybody showed up. For Halloween, everybody's going to show up, and then we go go off around the neighborhood to to get candy, hopefully. But I think it's interesting that as I've gotten older, I realized you know it's time to take off the masquerade. So in some ways, Halloween is a very apt metaphor for the masquerade of sometimes portraying masculinity in a mm-hmm. way that people will say, "Oh yeah, that dude is tough." And that was my high school and my college years in terms of how I've tried to portray myself. Speaking of toughness, your dad was a Marine captain. What was that vibe like in the house growing up with a Marine captain? Because you, again, you became a very accomplished person. So I'm wondering, were you born with that DNA or did you inherit that from your dad? 
you know, who knows? I mean, I think what I do know is both my parents were firstborn in their family and I'm the firstborn in on my family. Both my parents went to Stanford. So you can see there's a little bit of a, a seed planted here that I could become an accomplishment junkie um, or an admiration addict because firstborns often are extremely responsible and often somewhat driven. And that describes me. But I, you know, that's why, frankly, mindfulness was such an important part of my life in my early 20s when I took myself off of my father's treadmill. So my, my dad has the same name I do. The reason my name is Chip is because I'm a chip off the old block. My dad is Stephen Townsend Conley Sr. and I'm junior. I went to the same high school as my dad. He was my baseball coach and I was the star pitcher. I was in Boy Scouts and became an Eagle Scout, just like my dad. And my dad was the troop leader. <laughs> I went to high school, same high school as my dad and played water polo and swam, as did my dad. I got recruited to go play water polo at Stanford, as did my dad. He went to Stanford. He met his future wife, my mom, early at Stanford. I met my long-term girlfriend at Stanford. I joined a fraternity, but I didn't join the same fraternity as my dad. I joined a different fraternity, and that was when I started stepping out. And over the next three or four years, I stepped out in a bunch of ways, including coming out as a gay man. And that was hard. I will say that was hard because when you've been on a path to try to be a better version of your dad, and my parents' hope was that someday I'd be president of the United States, there was an mm-hmm. element of me that said, wow, I'm on this path and it's not the right path for me. So it was not just about coming out as gay, but it was also being clear while I was at Stanford Business School that I didn't want to just be an investment banker or management consultant. I wanted to do something weird. <laughs> I wanted to do something that lived lived up to my my birth date. And that's what I really focused on and how I ultimately started a boutique hotel company in my mid-20s. My nickname was Chip as well growing up. I don't know if you what? knew that. Yeah. So I Chip is your know. nickname. Chip's my nickname. But wait, what's... So, so the, my, mom, my mom started calling me Chipper when I was little. I guess where were you, I, where were you, where I, were you living? I'm, I'm from Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. My mom is from Chicago, right? She grew up in Chicago. And apparently this is the loose version of the story. Some guy from her high school, I guess I reminded her of him in some way. And his name was Chipper. So for some, I can't believe my dad let her do this, but she started calling me Chipper after this guy at her high school. And so I just became known as Chip. Everyone from growing up calls me Chip or Chipper. Even still today in my family, they they rarely call me Light. They call me Chipper mostly. So that's so, interesting. So your your given name is Light, though. Is that right? No, 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 no. Light is a name I took on in 2005, living that's in, what I in Los Angeles. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but but what was your given? What was your given name? I will tell you offline. I don't say it usually <laughs> for the record. <laughs> wow, this is but amazing. My given name was my mother's father's name. It's actually quite a popular name in my, on my mother's side of the family. So if anybody wants okay. to go and search that on Google, maybe you can find it. I'd, I'd be impressed yeah. if you can find that. So just quickly going back to your earlier developmental years, what was your idea of success growing up with the dad and the mom and the first child thing and all of that. Let me And, and the president of the United States aspirations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me set you straight that I am still in my developmental years and so are you. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to True. make sure you know that. It's funny, when we think of old growth forests and redwoods, we love them. But when we think of old growth humans, 
Like we don't like old and growth. <laughs> so that's one of my pet peeves is that we are always developing if assuming we're still living and living a good life. I was an introvert as a kid. I had like sort of imaginary creative friends, really good athlete, great basketball player. But I went to Long Beach Poly High School. So I was the curious white boy in my high school. I went to Snoop Dogg's high school. He's 10 years younger than me. No way. Number, number one feeder high school for the NBA and NFL. So my high school is the number one sports high school in America, Long Beach Poly. I loved it, but I was I was for sure a minority there. And you know what I loved in terms of success, your question about success, what I saw, oh, even though I was really introverted when I was young, is I became a social alchemist. Mm-hmm. And a social alchemist is someone who knows he's a, uh, he or she is a mixologist of people. And I think that was partly because I grew up and went to school in a place that was so ethnically diverse. No one race or ethnicity had more than 50% of the population in my junior high school or high school. So what that meant is I got to know people from all kinds of other walks of life. And, and I, I understood what it meant to be the other. And so long story short is I think my greatest sense of success was the fact that I was really good at bringing people together. Now, I also was completely obsessed with being perceived as successful. So my ego needed that partly because I was a closeted gay teen who was dating an all-American athlete and, you know, valedictorian student body president in my high school. And so I was like, you know, my resume was as long as my arm, partly because my sense of worth came from how successful I was or how, how, how frankly, even more specific to that, how perceived successful I was. You know, if you perceived me as successful, that was really important to me. But I was also savvy enough to know that I wasn't the sort of, excuse the expression, the asshole who was just constantly like saying, oh, look at how successful I am. And I, so I was very subtle about it, but I'm a big believer in the Enneagram and it was a personality typing tool. And I'm a three totally with a four wing, which means I'm somebody who is very motivated to achieve with the four wing, but is very much an individualist as well. That describes me really well. How I did that 40 years ago is different than how I do it today. So I would say that at the end of the day, the social alchemist, when somebody once called me that, and then I've been called it many times since then, that's when I was like, yeah, you know what? I like that. Did confidence and work ethic and all that come easily for you at that time in your life? Or do you remember it being intentional? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in there and, and bring these people together. I don't care what they think. Uh, was was very, there an inner dialogue? Yeah, there was an inner dialogue. And I, you know, since I was pretty shy and a little intimidated because my dad was a big personality and I was the only son in the, in the family. I had two younger sisters. There was a part of me that actually felt like I was in his shadow until, you know, again, in high school, when I started to break out of it, it was just like, I became, I don't know, just somebody who could be a joker. My dad was sort of a bit starched. You know, the Marines <laughs> will do that to you. I was a little bit more like, Hey, you know, what's up? So I think because my casual, more relaxed approach to things seemed to work. I think there was an element that I felt like, okay, well, you know, I'm being, I'm being liked for that. But I think the part of me that's true, that's really true is I knew I was very intentional in my junior high school and high school years of making friends because I didn't necessarily think I could do it easily. And that's maybe why I became such a social alchemist because it had to be intentional. When I was 12, my parents said, we're going to take you to therapy if you don't start making friends. And I didn't know what therapy was, but it didn't sound good. So I got very intentional about it. And ever since then, it's come very naturally for me. 
speaking was not something I could do very easily when I was young. I mean, getting up on stage, like I felt like I was going to throw up or I was going to pee in my pants or whatever. But I really just endeavored to get better at it, you know. And now, I oh mean, I, I give about a hundred speeches a year and given two TED talks on the big on the big TED stage. And yeah, I'm very fortunate that that's not where my nervousness comes. I can tell you where I get nervous still, but it isn't in those kinds of areas. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Talk about meditation. You got introduced to meditation how? Yeah, I got introduced to meditation in my early 20s. I went down and my girlfriend at the time before I came out, we would sneak down from Stanford University down to the Esalen Institute and go in the, in the middle mm. of the night to go to the hot springs. Mm-hmm. And you know you know that place. I was on the board yeah. there for 10 years. I used to teach there. Well, back in the day when I was in college, you know, more than 40 years ago, I was going to Esalen and sneaking in. And back then you had to sneak in at nighttime. Now you can right. actually go in in the middle of the night, but you, back then you, they didn't allow it. And so... What I, I was so enamored with the hot springs there that I ended up starting to sign up for workshops there. The first workshop I signed up for there was a mindfulness or they didn't even call it mindfulness back then. It was a meditation workshop. And I took the meditation really quickly. Not the same for yoga. Yoga, it's only in the last five years that I've come to really like yoga, maybe, maybe even love it. But meditation worked for me partly because I closed my eyes. Comparison is the recipe for suffering as we know. And so yoga, I didn't close my eyes. I was constantly looking around the room and I would compare myself with everybody else, mostly women who could put their you know leg behind their head. And I was like, I'm not as good as them. And you know, instead of enjoying being in my body, I didn't enjoy noticing their bodies and making the comparison. So meditation worked for me because I wasn't comparing just focusing on my breath was miraculous. 
and I can take direction pretty well and just like, just focus on your breath. It's like, okay, I'll do that. And I, what I found is it took me back to a time in childhood where I had creative and imaginary friends. It wasn't like they were all in my head, but it was this element of like, when I was off stage trying to be chip on stage, mm-hmm. I could go back to being a kid, a child and having the wonder of being in a park and like hanging out with butterflies and so meditation has been a, a core part of my life. I've, I've, I've gone to Rishikesh in India and done retreats there. I have done one of my favorite is with Mark Coleman doing uh, kayaking and silent Vipassana meditation retreat in the Loreto Bay, Sea of Cortez of Baja, California. So I, I do love meditation in all of its forms. The form I tend to take and use the most right now, I use a very variety of types, is EM, weirdly. Partly because it's the one that is the go-to for me when mm. I have my you know my mantra, and I can go there, and it's like I know I can lock in on it really quickly, no matter what the circumstances. I wonder how much we can credit meditate. I don't. Ironically, I'm a meditation teacher, as you know, and so I'm a big yeah. fan of the practice, but I don't like to give it too much credit <laughs> for causing these major shifts in life, but I do think it's like a trim tab, you know, in, in the sense that it can mm-hmm. help us pivot. And I wonder how much meditation in those earlier years was responsible for you choosing to go for the creativity over the money after B-School. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I do think it was this safety net. Mm-hmm. So no matter what was happening in my life, I, I knew I had, it's not even just the safety net, it was a life preserver. It was the thing that I could hold on to when I was struggling with my dad, when I was coming out to him, when I was making the really difficult choice out of business school to take a job to pay me $24,000 a year out of Stanford Business School. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> this is 1984. So this is a long time ago. But like truly the next lowest out of 320 students in my class, like I was 320 people, like in 320th place, 319th place was making $62,000 a year. And the average was about $95,000 a year. And I was taking a job for $24,000 a year because I really wanted to work for this maverick commercial real estate developer in San Francisco. I had job offers from Morgan Stanley and you, you name it in terms of real estate jobs. And, but I didn't take them. I took this other one and I, I took the road less traveled. And I really appreciated it because in that two and a half years that I worked in that company, not making a lot of money, I learned so much about what it means to be an entrepreneur. Because it was a very Mm. entrepreneurial company. And it was around my 26th birthday that I finished the business plan for for Joie de Vivre. I called it Joie de Vivre because it means joy of life in French. Our mission statement was to create joy. And, you know, hey, why not? And that's how I started the company. And ultimately, Joie de Vivre grew to 52 boutique hotels around California. Had you discovered Paul Hawkins' book yet on entrepreneurship? Yes. So Paul Hawkins' book called Growing a Business, became my Bible in 1987. Uh His book came out in 1987. He then had a PBS series called Growing a Business that I watched. And yeah, he was like, he he was this conscious capitalist. He was this guy that I really appreciated his point of view on how do you do business in a, a sort of new kind of way, a way uh-huh. in which there's multiple stakeholders in the business. And, you know, now he's on our faculty at Modern Elder Academy, which we'll talk about later, but yes.
So when you decided on purchasing the Phoenix, I'm just curious. I'm not familiar with San Francisco, obviously, that much. I've been there a few times, but I don't I don't know where the Tenderloin is compared to any other district in San Francisco. <laughs> was that something you would pass by often and you saw it? Was it calling you? Like, why was that property the one that yeah. you decided to take a leap on on your 26th birthday? Well, you're 26 years old. You don't have a lot of money in your pocket. You're not necessarily from a wealthy <laughs> family. I ain't going to buy something in Union Square or Fisherman's Wharf. That's for sure. I didn't have that kind of money. I had to go out and raise money. So I, I went to the toughest neighborhood in town. And the Tenderloin, known as the TL, is about as tough as it gets. And it's a neighborhood that you know has a long, weird history, but it was not a good neighborhood. And the place I saw was in bankruptcy and foreclosure. It was a pay-by-the-hour motel. It was called the Caravan Lodge. People would come for one hour. You know, they pay an hour at a time. And so you know what kind of place it was. It was 44 rooms facing a beautiful courtyard and swimming pool in a really rough neighborhood. So I bought it for (laughs) $800,000. I didn't own the land. I had, a, I think, a 40-year land lease. But I had a 40-year land lease and I bought all the improvements for $800,000. Imagine... You can't even buy a studio condo in San Francisco for $800,000 today. And then I raised $300,000 additional to renovate it. I mean, you can't renovate a 44-room hotel and change the name and change the identity for $300,000. So long story short, we did things that were like impossible. So for $1.1 million based upon the money I raised, that's how my hotel career got started. Did people think you were crazy? I mean... <laughs> Light. I mean, first of all, I was the crazy dude in Stanford Business School who took this ridiculous job. Then I left that job to start this hotel company with no hotel experience. And nobody even knew what boutique hotels were back then because it was really the mid 1980s. Like boutique hotels were not a big thing yet. And then I bought this motel that was a pay by our motel and then renovated it for almost no money. I mean, like, come on, this was Chips lost his mind. And my father, actually, interestingly, this is where my father and I started bonding again. So it was three or four years earlier, I came out to him. And in the process of buying that hotel, what my dad said to me is, you know, when you when you came out as gay, I thought you're going to become a florist or, uh, and this is truly what he said, I think you'd be a florist or a interior designer. I didn't think you'd be an entrepreneur. And here you are, you're an entrepreneur. So my dad was very supportive. And it really built our relationship from there. Because what I think my dad started to see is... Chip is a social alchemist, frankly, being a boutique hotelier and a restaurateur and owning bars, which is part of the world I was in, I was really good at it. My dad could never have done that. I was also very good at directing interior designers about how to create, with not a lot of money, a pretty interesting, compelling design, which is what boutique hotels are often about. So, and I was, you know, I had enough humility to be able to serve. If you're a hospitality person, you better know how to serve. You're there to basically make people feel good. You were inspired by your dad. Your dad started a company when you were in Morgan Stanley, right? And that kind of inspired you yeah. to think differently? My, my, my dad started, you know, in, to his credit, when he was in his mid to later 40s, when he had he had two kids at Stanford and he had a daughter who was going to go to UC Berkeley a, few, a couple of years later, he left his banking job and started a commercial real estate investment company. Right. And took a lot of risks. So I, yeah, he was an inspiration. He he started that business about maybe four years before I started my business. Had you stayed in a boutique hotel? Did you know about <laughs> Ian Schrager? Like what made you, 
or, or, or this whole idea of combining hotels with magazines, like where did all that come from? I did not know much about Ian Schrager, but I did know about Bill Kimpton. So really the two fathers of the boutique hotel business, and I'm like the court jester, these two guys started their boutique hotel companies, Ian Schrager in New York, Bill Kimpton in San Francisco. And I didn't know much about Schrager's hotels, but I did know about Kimpton's hotels because he started in 1984 and I was starting to do my research in 86. So mm-hmm. he had he'd just gotten off the ground. And I was curious, but Schrager was very much the cool hip thing because he started Studio 54. I wasn't sure I wanted to be quite as hipster as, as Schrager. And Kimpton was an investment banker who decided to become a boutique hotelier. So his hotels were sort of a little more conservative, a little more business-like. And I, they were whimsical too, but they were... So neither one of them was the right fit. And I actually sort of had the point of view. And they also were going both going after a higher-end market. And I said, listen, Chip likes cheap chic. <laughs> so how do we create some cheap chic? And so the Phoenix, that first hotel, which I still own 36 years later, that hotel basically went after rock and roll bands, musicians, and creative artists who were on the road. And it became a hit pretty quickly. It was the place where musicians on the road, creatives on the road, could just go hang their hat. And you can imagine me as a guy in his late 20s, <laughs> hanging out by the pool with Red Hot Chili Peppers or Johnny Rotten or Nirvana or John Kennedy Jr. or Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, we just had, the, you know, had all kinds of wacky people. So I have a lot of great stories. It, you know, if, if anybody puts a gun to my head, I might tell some famous stories of people who I've never told stories about because hoteliers tend to know all the, the juicy gossip. I'm more curious about how you got rid of Vinny the Pimp, who was your biggest corporate client when you took yeah. over the hotel. So you, <laughs> you so have you a buy, conversation with this Yeah, guy. You, you buy a pay-by-the-hour motel. Who's your biggest corporate account? It's a pimp and his prostitutes. And that is exact, exactly the case. And so the first thing I did for Vinny is I raised the hourly rate thinking, okay, I'm charging you $35 an hour right now. That's now going to $50 an hour. And $50 an hour was not that much different than our our nightly rate. But Vinny kept coming back. And then one day I, I sat down with Vinny and I said, listen, Vinny, I got some friends in the police department. I'm not going to have them hang out here. But I just want to say, we're no longer going to have hourly rates. So you can do the nightly rate and still bring people, but it's going to be not good for you financially. But also, you know what? <laughs> Although probably some of those cops were actually there on their lunch hour hanging out with Vinny, you know, who knows? But long story short, is he, he, he realized he needed to move on. But the, the hard part then was like, oh my God, my core business is gone. And as we opened the hotel, changed the name to the Phoenix Rising from its Own Ashes, I had to figure out how we got other business. And that's when the band business really kicked in. And, you know, then Lynn Ronstead took the whole hotel for two weeks at one point because she was doing a show in town. That's where the hotels were became famous. When I read about your mentor that you never met, I was really fascinated by that because I think this is helpful. People are out there who they obviously you you want an in-person mentor, but I think this is a really great alternative. Can you just talk a little bit about how that worked? Yeah. I mean, a lot of us, when we're thinking about a mentor, it's sort of scary things like matrimony (laughs) is Mm -hmm. the M word. And you're going to like ask someone to be your mentor and, you feel like you're asking them to marry you. And so there's an element of like, you can only ask it to someone, you know, or you could only ask it to someone who you know is going to say yes. Well, in my late twenties, my company was starting to grow and I just knew corporate culture, understanding the culture of an organization 
how to create a great corporate culture was like what I wanted to learn about. So I asked myself, what company in the United States do I most admire for their culture? And I said, Southwest Airlines. So I got on the phone to Dallas, Texas, where Southwest was headquartered. And I asked the operator at Southwest, can I talk to Herb Kelleher, please? She put me through to a woman woman named Colleen Barrett, who was Herb's legal assistant and executive assistant. And I said, you know, she asked me who I was and I told her the story. And she's like, well, Herb's pretty busy. He's the CEO of, of Southwest Airlines. But I told her about 10 minutes more of it. She says, you know, I really like you. And I, she said, I think you should write a letter to Herb and ask him these questions about corporate culture. And I will do my best to see that he answers it. Mm-hmm. So I, read, I polished this letter. I sent it off back in the day. Of course, this was not email. So a letter goes to Dallas. Three weeks later, I get a letter back from Herb Keller. And he answered my questions really well. And then he asked me a couple questions. And then he said, you know, once a year, you can send me a letter and you can, I'll be your pen pal mentor. What a mensch, what a, what a big hearted guy he was. So for 10 years, I did that. And the thing that's interesting about Colleen Barrett, his legal assistant, executive assistant, is Colleen went on to become the president of Southwest Airlines. His secretary became the president, partly because Herb believed that she was spectacular at understanding culture. So I mm. learned as much from Colleen as I did from Herb. Long story short is I was lucky enough yeah, to be on the cover of Southwest Airlines Inflight Magazine in January 2019, a month before Herb passed. Uh, he died and he was on the cover of the magazine in March of 2019. And but what a man, what you know, what two two parts to that. Number one is, you know, he didn't have to do that. So ever since then, I've done my best to be as open-hearted and open-minded to provide support to people younger than me who have mm-hmm. want a little bit of mentorship. For me, it's usually by email. It's not usually in person. And secondly, it just shows that mentorship doesn't have to be someone you know. It could be someone you don't know. So I've, I've since then heard from a lot of people who heard the story saying, oh, I, I wrote you know, so-and-so. And Now, just know that I had a one-for-one record there. I could have asked 10 people and they all could have said no. So it's not like the first person is going to always say yes. That ultimately led me to becoming a mentor. And my first mentee was a guy named Gavin Newsom, who no, no one had ever heard of back mm-hmm. when he was 28 and I was 35. And his sister came to me and said, like, Gavin started this company, Plump Jack, this hospitality company. And he knows that you started his your company when you're about the same age. And he just needs a mentor, but he's scared to ask you. And I was like, okay, well, have Gavin come down to my office in Union Square every Friday afternoon, and I'll try to mentor him. And I did for a few years. And, and then he became mayor of San Francisco. And then now he's the governor of California. And I still have a weird texting relationship with him where I can mentor him on occasion. But that was a beautiful experience of the full circle understanding. I went from mentee to about six years later to becoming a mentor to somebody you know, who's now a very powerful person in the world. And I don't say that to actually you know, make myself look good that I know a powerful person. I say that to maybe say, you know, once you experience what it's like to be a mentee, you desperately, mm-hmm. at least for me, I desperately wanted to be, I wanted to return the favor. I wanted to reciprocate. What would you say are the attributes of a good mentee, of, of a mentee that a mentor is more than happy to serve? Well, first of all, a great mentee better understand that the value of time for the mentor is exceptional. Mm-hmm. So especially the, the, the more experienced and more time-challenged that mentor is, 
you better manage the mentee more mentor relationship well. So how can you do that? First, you have to make the ask. I don't think you can go straight into getting to know someone. So for Herb Kelleher, he only knew about that I wanted him to be the mentor, not because of my letter, because I didn't say that, because Colleen had told him that. First, you say, hey, let's go have, you know, let's go get some coffee with someone. Or if in the Zoom world, you know, let's go spend 15 minutes just getting to know each other on a Zoom call. And because you just need to see if there's a rapport there. It's really, it's really important. And, but the most important thing for a mentee to do is to say, okay, let's do this once a month or every other week. And let's spend a half hour or an hour having this conversation. And let me be clear. I will send you an email a day in advance to tell you what I really want to understand. And there's two kinds of mentor-mentee relationships. The first one is a knowledge exchange. And when it's a knowledge exchange relationship, what that means is the mentee is asking the mentor questions about what they want to learn. And the mentor is the wise advisor and maybe like the librarian with you know the know-how and the know-who that can help that person become more knowledgeable. The second kind of mentor relationship is more developmental, more personal, more about building your skills as a human in the context of work or in the context of a leader or whatever. And and so, whereas the first relationship could be knowledge exchange and, you know, maybe two or three sessions is all you need. But the second one is like, oh, I'm developing you as a human. I'm helping to build your emotional intelligence. I'm helping to build your self-awareness. I'm helping you to build, you know, sort of a strategic mind. And so, that kind of relationship can last a lot longer. So, as a mentee, get clear what you're looking for. Are you looking for some, to learn from that person about what makes a great culture, as I did with Herb Kelleher? So, it could be just a few questions. Or are you learning how to become more emotionally aware as a leader? If it's that more emotionally aware as a leader, yeah, that could be all about knowledge exchange, but it's more like building you as a human. And know that that's often a relationship that maybe have more than two or three sessions. And Mm -hmm. that's an important thing for a mentor to think about as well, is like, you know, how much time do you have? If it's the first kind of relationship, knowledge exchange, yep, that can be finite and you move on. The second kind of relationship does require more time and it probably is going to last longer. All right. So you worked in hospitality for 24 years and I would love to just go through and talk about all that, but obviously we want to get to what you're doing right now. But I am curious, looking back, what would you say was one of the biggest or most prominent mistakes that you made in those 24 years? And then what is the thing you're most proud of in those 24 years? So yeah, I was, I was CEO of this Joaquin company for 24 years. I think the biggest mistake I made was an emotional mistake of attaching my sense of self-worth to the success or failure of the company. Mm-hmm. And the hospitality business is, is very much a cyclical business. And mm-hmm. so I, I would get cyclical to my stomach <laughs> because I felt like I was on a roller coaster. <laughs> I was on this roller coaster of like the cycles of the, you know, like when we were in the Great Recession, it was not a lot of fun though in hotels. And I lost five friends to suicide between 2008 and 2010, all men, 42 to 52. And partly because many of them actually had that same issue. They attached their sense of self-worth to their business card or toward, you know, toward their company or whatever. So I would say that's one of my greatest learnings and one that has allowed me to create some space between me and what I've done in the two chapters since selling the company. Biggest thing I'm proud of is I'm very proud of the fact that we became 
with 3,500 employees ultimately, an incubator for entrepreneurs and a deep, deeply connected culture. You know, the thing I wanted from Herb Keller is what we became. We became one of the best places to work in, you know, Northern California. And we got a lot of awards for both the employee satisfaction, but also the customer satisfaction as well. Was his mentorship instrumental in you yeah. implementing any of that? He he helped me with a bunch of things that I'll never forget. He said, Chip, the customer comes second. Do you know everybody, every company says, oh, the customer comes first. Right. So he said, the customer comes second, the employee comes first. Mm. If, you're in a, if you're in a service business and you're not most focused on how you're treating your employees and how you're creating a culture of recognition, you don't have a sustainable business model to satisfy your customers. So, you know, I invested a lot in our culture and in learning and development programs for our line level employees. You know, when we went into deep downturns, we didn't lay people off for economic reasons. We figured out ways to save money. We had senior leaders in the company taking 10 and 20% pay cuts. Or for me, I took a three and a half year pay sabbatical during the dot-com bust and 9-11 period. So long story short is, you know, I'm really proud of that culture and I'm proud that it allowed me to write some books that became very popular and it allowed a lot of other entrepreneurs that I know who became pretty famous, more famous than me for sure, to look at that culture and emulate it and say, hey, I learned a lot from Chip about leadership and I applied it at Zappos or at Airbnb or at Tom's Shoes or at Whole Foods Markets. Two more quick questions about that experience. Since you were the captain of the ship for such a long time, I'm sure that you developed some sort of system around offering criticism and also the hiring firing process. You know, there's the whole saying you hire slow and you fire fast. What was your experience with like criticism and like just managing all of that? Well, first of all, my favorite question for hiring is what's the number one way you're commonly misperceived at work? Mm. It's That's a really a good question. Unusual, it's a really <laughs> unusual question. It comes out of left field. And if someone's just sort of like just spouting like a robot, the same thing they say all the time, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, and and it requires self-awareness. What's the number one way I'm commonly misperceived at work? So the process of hiring is exceptionally important. And then the culture, acculturation of people is important. Yeah, I think I, what I would say is that first 90 days is exceptionally important because you can see you know, if they're not showing their best in their first 90 days, when I say their best, I don't mean like their greatest potential, the greatest potential is in the future, but Mm -hmm. their greatest curiosity, their most empathetic, socially aware kind of personality. So as I said earlier about myself, I am a big believer in personality typologies. We didn't ever require it of people, but you know, anybody who's a senior leader in the company, if they wanted to learn about what their personality type was on the Enneagram, we would, you know, pay for that and help them to understand it. And then frankly, help go through a a class on understanding personality types, which was very valuable for leaders. The question I would ask my direct reports was, how can I support you to do the best work of your life here at Joie de Vivre? How can I support you to do the best work of your life here at Joie de Vivre? And that was a really profound question because what it did is it helped people to sort of say, hmm, well, first of all, my boss supports me, and that's an important thing. And a lot of people don't think that that's the case. Secondly, Chip wants me to do the best work of my life here. Wow, I guess I've got to stretch. And then thirdly, it was, hey, I'm putting this in your lap. You tell me, I'm the boss, but you're going to tell me, what is it you need? 
And that was all of a sudden shifting certain people out of being the, potentially the victim of the company or their boss to having agency. Mm-hmm. And I really think that great leaders are all about helping their direct reports and, and people in the company have a sense of agency. Agency really means choice. It means autonomy. It means the ability to impact something. A lot of times also as a leader, you know, especially if so many people, you don't have an outlet. You don't have anyone that you can really open up with and talk to. And so I'm curious, what was your mental state like? Did it fluctuate? Was it kind of even? Because I know we're gonna we're gonna build up to this this talk you gave in St. Louis. And I just want to kind of lay yeah. the I had YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Okay. But but I felt a bit of like an outcast there. <laughs> Because it was a lot of really powerful, especially in Silicon Valley, where like I was in, a, you have a chapter of about forty or fifty people, and then you have a, a little forum of seven or eight people. I mean, yeah. I had the CEO of four different companies in my group, like publicly traded companies, and so I felt a little bit weird there. But I, I, I was open to being vulnerable, and and I think my vulnerability in that group helped them be vulnerable. I was the only gay guy in the group, and. We had one woman in the group, but she was not asking. And so the two of us, I think, helped to shift some of the normal posturing that might have been going on. I also had a really good friend, Vanda. And Vanda was one of my best friends and was a leadership coach and executive coach. And I never paid her a dime because I was just her friend. But man, did I, we talk a lot. And she helped me when I was, I had suicide ideation around 2008, 2000, actually 2009, no, 2008. And yeah, she helped me a lot. So thankfully, I had some social support, like a, an emotional insurance is what I call it. We have property and liability insurance for a rainy day for our home. But most of us, especially men, don't really think about where's our emotional insurance for mm. if we have a rainy day in our life. So that's a you know really important part of how I look at my role now, which is to help people in midlife to live up to their potential and realize all of the ways they can transition effectively. So so I would just say I did have some sources, but like everything that could go wrong, you know, excuse the expression, but I had a clusterfuck in you know my mid to late forties where I had a long-term relationship ending not by my choice. I have an African American foster son who's an adult who was wrongfully going to prison, went to San Quentin until eight months later I Federal judge let him out and said he was not guilty. But it was like he came out a very different man. I was starting to lose friends. One of them named Chip. One of my five friends who committed suicide or took their life was named Chip. Very, very close friend of mine. I was running out of cash. So, you know, the Great Recession was in the early stages, but, you know, we were growing faster than ever before, but we didn't see the recession coming. And frankly, uh, like, I didn't want to be doing what I was doing anymore. I was in my own prison in my own mind that, you know, my identity as the founder and CEO of Joie de Vivre with all of the VIP status that came with that was, I felt like I couldn't leave it. And, and I wanted to. And so I was having nightmares about cancer and car crashes. And then, you know, lo and behold, I had my NDE. I had broken my ankle at Gavin Newsom's bachelor party <laughs> at AT&T Ballpark. So if you're the mayor of San Francisco, you can take over when the San Francisco Giants play baseball and have 20 of your friends over and have a bachelor party, you know, in an empty state. 
<laughs> and I broke my ankle playing baseball. I had a back. I got a bacterial infection in my leg because I got a cut on my leg, and I was on a strong antibiotic. And I should have been at home under the covers. But a week or two after that, I was in St. Louis giving a speech because I had a new book come out. And I, after being on crutches on giving the speech, I sat down to sign books, and I I just went out. I went unconscious, and thankfully I didn't go flatline yet until the paramedic showed up. I was actually unconscious for five minutes, though. Paramedics showed up, put me on a gurney, and that was the first of nine times that I went flatline. And, you know, they had to pull the paddles out and shocked me back to life. I was 47 years old. They had mm-hmm. no idea what was wrong with me. And I went to the other side and I kept coming back and I kept telling the nurse what I saw. She said, that's what you told me last time. <laughs> so I kept, I kept having the same vision. But the next two or three days, I was in the hospital there as they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And I felt fine a few hours later. But I had Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, in my backpack. And not too many CEOs carry that around in their backpack. But I had been feeling a, a real deep sense of being in this prison. And that's a famous book about a Jewish psychologist who's in a concentration camp. And so I was, you know, it, sometimes I would read it just to make myself feel better because, you know, I was in my own prison in my mind. I was not in a concentration camp. And it's a beautiful book. And what I came to realize from that book was like, wow, despair equals suffering minus meaning. And I came mm-hmm. out of my hospital stay saying, wow, suffering is sort of ever present. You know, if you're Buddhist, it's one of the first noble truth of Buddhism is that suffering is always there. Despair and meaning are inversely proportional. The more meaning you find, the less despair you have. And what that helped me to see for the next two years as I, in the bottom of the recession, tried to sell my company, which was like almost impossible to do, that if I could find meaning in the process of whatever I was doing, as difficult as the circumstances, my son in prison, my partner of a bunch of years leaving me, my own health being in trouble, running out of cash, not wanting to do this job anymore, if I could find meaning. And so every weekend I would sit down and say, what meaning did I find this week? Because I felt like the process of finding meaning every week was what would give me fuel. It would give me oxygen. And so, yeah, I got to the other side of it, you know, sold the company right around my 50th birthday. And and then I went from the bottom of the U-curve of happiness. You guys can look at that on Google, which is like fascinating cultural social science study, which shows that frankly, 45 to 50 is the most difficult time. Light, you're just coming out of that time soon enough. Um <laughs> And, you know, your mileage may vary. <laughs> this is all averages. And then you go into your 50s. And, and generally speaking, people are happier in their 50s than 40s, happier than the 60s and 50s. And then I, even happier in their 70s than 60s. And women happier in their 80s than 70s. So I've been on this incline. You know, I turned 62 in October, Halloween. And my 50s were spectacular. And my 60s are even better. So I will say that I had two experiences of midlife. One was terrible. And then I had this second experience, which was spectacular. And we'll, I guess mm-hmm. we'll talk about that now. What was the plan? Like you sold your company. Now we have this sort of two-year gap between the Airbnb era. What were you thinking during that time? What was... What was I, I, I was thinking... Like I mentioned I just, to you before we talked, I, I don't feel like I'm, quotes old or, you know, like I'm you know, at the end or any... So what were you... Because before, before you got into all of this... Crack. <laughs> before you got into all this and developed the language for what you're doing now like what was your what was your thinking on aging and being in your midlife and etc i mean 
what was the first thing I was thinking like, okay, midlife sucks. I mean, I lost five friends between 42 and 52 mm-hmm. to suicide and I had my own ideation, suicide ideation. So like suicide sucks. Like if you can get the other side of it, you know, I don't know. I, I really didn't know what was next for me. I, which was a hard thing. Robert De Niro in the movie, The Intern, where he worked for Anne Hathaway, who was half his age. He says, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. <laughs> so, so I was not a musician, but I had something stored inside of me. I didn't know what to call it. Now I would call it wisdom. And what I knew is that I wanted some space. I wanted some space to write this next book, which is called Emotional Equations. And I really wanted to write that book because I knew I went through a lot of emotions and I had built some emotional fluency during my downtime my midlife crisis, so to speak. I actually now call it the midlife chrysalis because it's actually between caterpillar and butterfly, there's a chrysalis. It's dark, it's gooey, but it's where the transformation happens. And that's really often what happens in midlife. Talk about the journaling you've been doing once a week. Because I think that's really important to kind of bring this whole period together. Since age 28, I had, had, and it's sort of similar to what I was talking about with the meaning stuff earlier. Mm -hmm. Since age 28, I'd written in a book I had taken an old journal and I wrote on the cover of it, my wisdom book. And every weekend I would sit down starting at age 28 and make a note of what did I learn that week? Ultimately it became a little bit of like, what meaning did I find from this week? But initially it started as like, what did I learn? And at the time I had no idea that what I was doing was I was accelerating my wisdom because wisdom in my view, this is my definition is Wisdom is metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was metabolizing my experience that was leading to distilled compassion, sometimes towards myself, but also sometimes towards understanding humans. And how could I be a little bit more compassionate, but also artful when when I was able to be compassionate? Because actually, frankly, if you're compassionate all the time, you got to be the Dalai Lama to have that kind of energy. And and so the distilled, (laughs) that's why it's distilled, from my perspective, it's distilled compassion. So long story short is I started doing that in my late 20s. I still do it. I don't do it as much as I used to. I don't do it weekly anymore. So I was doing that. And I also was fascinated by festivals, right? I mean, I was a founding board member of Burning Man. And so the Burning Man nonprofit. And so like I was fascinated by festivals of all kinds, religious pilgrimages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I spent a year going to 36 festivals in 16 countries. Sometimes, you know, as a VIP, sometimes it's like the rat who's sleeping in a tent, you know, uh, amongst a bunch of partiers. And so I did that. And I then created a website called Fest 300, which was an annual list of the 300 best festivals in the world. But it was around that time that I got a call from Airbnb, from the founders. And Brian Chesky said, you know what, I want you to be my mentor and my in-house mentor. And I also want you to help us. This is 10 years ago. They were a tiny little tech startup, nobody in the company had any hospitality or travel industry background. And and frankly, nobody had ever really been an entrepreneur for any extended period of time. So my job is to come in and help them. And I thought it was going to be just a part-time thing on the side and they wouldn't pay me a lot and I would just help them. And as it turns out, it was like, whoa, 70 to 80 hours a week. And I was the most traveled leader at Airbnb around the world because we were going global. And so, yeah, ultimately they paid me uh, really well. And I spent seven and a half years helping them four years full-time and then three and a half years as a strategic advisor. But what was interesting along that way, like, is that they started calling me the modern elder. And I was like, Oh, why are you calling me the modern elder? (laughs) I don't want to be the modern elder. And and they said, no, it's not elderly. You're not elderly. 
But an elder is someone who's relatively speaking older than the people around them. And they're, you're 52, Chip, when I started. And the average age in the company is 26. So yeah. And, but then they said the thing that caught me. They said, Chip, a modern elder is as curious as they are wise. Like, okay. Back to alchemy. If I can learn how to be the perfect alchemy of curiosity and wisdom, depending upon what the moment needs, I will be that. And that is when I started to realize there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. And I started to realize my value in a way that I don't think I'd ever seen. And so Airbnb is now the most, back then we were nothing, but they had a good idea. They had gotten it off the ground and gotten really well started. And I really appreciate that they, I get to help steer the rocket ship and Airbnb is now the most valuable hospitality company in the world. So I took, you know, I call this same seed, different soil. So same seed basically means if you can understand what wisdom you have, what did you learn? You have some sense of like, what are my seeds of my wisdom and, and my gift? The meaning of your life is to find your gift. The purpose of your life is to give it away. The meaning of your life is to find your gift. The purpose of your life is to give it away. I realized that the same seed, my seed that I had to offer was in really different soil. Yes, they're trying to be a hospitality company, but this was a tech company. And at age 52, I joined a tech company for the first time. What the hell? They're talking a language I didn't understand, but I stuck with it. And my curiosity helped me to understand how to apply my wisdom within an environment that felt like it was foreign territory to me. Being a battle-hardened veteran of the hospitality industry, you know, the modern elder coming in, seeing these young kids, average age 26, trying to get traction or getting more traction on this company. Did you see it? Did you get it? What surprised you about the way that society sort of responded to what they were trying to do, even with all well, of your experience? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, so I wrote a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. The number one first step for someone who's going to be a modern elder, especially if they're in a new environment, mm-hmm. different soil, you got to evolve. You got to be willing to take and shed some of the identities you've had. I, first of all, had to shed the identity of like, oh, I was the CEO of my own company for 24 years. I call the shots. Well, no, I was the sage on the stage, but now I'm the guide on the side. You know, the articles that are going to be written about Airbnb may not include me, but I'm going to try to make these three founders look really good, especially Brian, who I'm proud to say is still 10 years later, the CEO of that public company. So part of it was my ego. Part of it was my identity. What I also had to do is be willing to say, I'm sometimes going to be the dumbest person in the room, but I hope I'm the most curious one because a lot of these people in this room understand DQ, digital intelligence. I may understand EQ, but they understand DQ and I can learn some DQ from them. So I had over a hundred mentees while I was at Airbnb seven and a half years in that seven and a half years. And man, most of the time we had a mutual mentorship relationship. So I called myself a mentor, a mentor and an intern (laughs) at the same time. So long story short is, I think that the world looked at Airbnb and the hospitality world in particular and said, what the hell is this? This is not going anywhere. And in fact, I got the same experience when I joined Airbnb as when I started Joie de Vivre. Like mm-hmm. my friends are looking at me like, oh, that's such a stupid idea. And of course, these are hoteliers who just couldn't see the disruption that was just about to, they're like the blockbuster video you know, franchise owners who had no idea what Netflix was. Well, guess what? Netflix and Airbnb and Amazon and a few others have a lot in common. It was a different product, a different market. Part of my job was to figure out how do you take this sort of weird idea of people staying in each other's homes 
and mainstream it and popularize it so that Airbnb becomes a verb. Oh, just go Airbnb it. You've got mm -hmm. an extra space in your home. So long story short is that was a fascinating process. And I was so lucky to have a lot of smart people by my side, almost all of them younger and some of them a lot younger. But I think the collaboration piece of it was what was most beautiful, was realizing, and I think this is very important for the future. We have five generations in the workplace for the very first time. Never had that before. And by the year 2025, the average American will have a younger boss. Today, over 40% of Americans have a younger boss. But, but, but three years from now, the majority of Americans will have a younger boss. Mm -hmm. So we got to learn how to get along because this is the old hierarchy was the old people had the power and the young people just did, did the shit work. And it has changed. And to have a boss who is 21 years younger than me, who I was also mentoring at the same time, was so instructive and at times humorous. You know, I, I loved the learning and, you know, it led to me to give me one of my TED Talks, which was fun. Was there anything they were doing that contradicted the conventional wisdom of hospitality? Almost everything. I mean, let, let's start with this one. Chip, you're in charge of hospitality and strategy and business development and a bunch of stuff. In essence, you're in charge of all the hosts globally. Let's make sure we can get to a point where our guest satisfaction is higher than the hotel industry's guest satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And I looked at Brian and I said, well, like the hotel industry is training staff, full-time staff usually, who they're able to observe every single day. <laughs> and you want our hosts who are sometimes like, you know, whacked out on drugs or something. I mean, like they're, we have all kinds of hosts around the world, you know, who knows what they're doing. And they, and we actually cannot train them. Back in the early days, we could not do educational videos for them because it actually it would make them become employees. But what I'm so proud of light is by the fourth year of me being there, our guest satisfaction for Airbnb host experiences, you know, being in a home was about 50% higher than the hotel industries. But it all came back to psychology, which to me is like the most important attribute or skill in business. How do you create the incentives for people to do a spectacular job? And how do you, so the carrot, and then how do you create the stick to make sure those who are not good hosts are taken off the platform or they understand what they have to improve on? Because actually what was beautiful is the thing we had going for us that the hotel industry didn't have is we had the peer-to-peer -peer review system. So mm. if you go on Airbnb, you get reviewed as a host or a guest. So if you stay at a hotel, you might go to TripAdvisor and fill out something there, but you don't necessarily fill out the online survey they send you. And no guest is ever rated by the hotel. So something that was out of the ordinary was this peer-to-peer -peer review system, which I took advantage of in a huge way. Because what it did is it allowed me to create, and our team, not just me, to create incentives, psychological incentives that influence behavior and doing it on a global basis. So I was like, I don't know, B.F. Skinner or Freud or my favorite Maslow looking at how do you articulate psychological needs and then create incentives to influence behavior such that you create a win-win situation, which is exactly what happened. And certainly... <laughs> You've seen lots of articles about things that didn't go well at Airbnb in terms of like, you know, someone trashed a room or, I mean, lots of tragic stuff. And Airbnb ultimately, by the time I had been there four years, was just a representation of the world. So racism was happening on Airbnb. So 
you name it. I mean, it was all happening. So that's when we had to get smarter and say, okay, how can we be better than the rest of the world? And, you know, how do we deal with places where there's too many Airbnbs, Airbnbs are messing up neighborhoods, affecting affordable housing, et cetera. And so, you know, we had to try to address that as well. So it was a fascinating journey. But after four years of doing 70 or 80 hours a week, when I first thought it was only 15 hours a week, meant that I needed <laughs> to move into a strategic advisor role that allowed me to spend some time on the beach in Baja, where I had a home on the beach about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas in Mexico. And I started writing my book. And it was while I was writing that book that I had this Baja aha, this epiphany of like, well, I've had two experiences of midlife, one that was terrible, one that was spectacular. But where in the world do we help people to go through their midlife transitions with a curriculum that is quite specific to midlife? And we don't have any schools or tools or rites or passage or rituals. And that's how the Modern Elder Academy came about, also known as MEA. And yeah, we've had 3,000 alumni from 40 countries and we have 26 regional chapters. And it's been amazing to see that there was such a need. So we started the first venture 26. Now you're in your early 50s starting this, this sort of third stage of your well, professional. Early 50s was Airbnb. So, so yeah, first stage was Joie Second stage was Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And then third stage would be late 50s with MEA. Talk about your mindset at that point, having had all this life experience and knowing all about commercial real estate, having disrupted a whole industry and having served on the board of Esalen and Burning Man and all that in funneling all of that into the Modern Elder Academy. Was there any, you mentioned nervousness earlier. I don't know if this was the period where you had any nervousness or are people going to come? Were you confident that if I built this, people will come? Like, what was your mindset? I think, you know, I was curious. You know, it's interesting. When in fear, see if curiosity will work. I mean, -hmm. I had a little bit of fear because I was going to spend some money doing this, investing in it and seeing if there was a need for it. But I had more curiosity than anything. And I had a deep sense of resolve. On some level, I was saying to myself, not publicly, I'm doing this for Chip. Not me, Chip Conley, who is living, but my friend Chip Hankins, Mm -hmm. who actually took his own life in midlife. In fact, he did that in New Zealand. He lived in New Zealand, but he used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And his son came and interned with us at MEA in the early days. So I think there was a curiosity, a desire to serve, a deep feeling like we as a society have done a a disservice to people in midlife to give them the, the sense that somehow you're supposed to get through this on your own. And I was also a geek studying white papers and talking to all kinds of academics around this stage of life. And, you know, pretty quickly, I became one of the world's leading experts on midlife. And that's how we were able to build our curriculum. The biggest scare was when COVID came along. So we got, we opened and like, you know, people, we were busy and people were liking it. We were getting a lot of press and, and then COVID came along. It's like, okay, well, so we're in a foreign country from most of the people who come to MEA. So that's not so good during COVID. Our average age is 54 of the people who are coming. And we have had people from 28 to 88, but we have a lot of people who are in a particularly vulnerable demographic, let's say 60 plus during COVID. There's a lot of people who were 60 years and older. And so that was not easy. And then, you know, in the kind of intimate 20 to 24 people in a workshop, 
that we were doing, it was physically and emotionally intimate. Well, COVID, that's not going to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So do we just shut down and just, you know, call it a day? No, we have 30 employees and we have a lot of middle-class lifestyle being built in this Mexican rural fishing, farming, surfing village that we were based in on the beach. I didn't want to have to put all those people out of work. So I think that was when the biggest fear was like, how do we get through this with no control and no optics on what this COVID thing is going to be when we closed March 15th, 2020. As it turns out, I, lo- I love this phrase. It's one that I coined a few years ago. And I, I, I just pull it out when I'm talking about this. Resilience buys you time and adaptability buys you a future. And mm. that is exactly what happened. We bought, we bought ourselves some time, but if you're white knuckling it, just trying to get through it, you'll burn out over time. So mm. the resilience, we got resilient about how we're going to save money here and what we're going to do. And, but then we sort of said, okay, how do we adapt? And we created an online program we created something called sabbatical sessions that we did, did in Baja that was COVID safe. And then we decided we were going to create a huge operation in the U.S., in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so we came here during COVID to say, let's start prospecting and acquiring some properties to create academies and regenerative communities here, which are residential communities. We have one in Baja and, and we'll have them in Santa Fe, New Mexico as well. Was that something that was inspired by Paul's work, the regenerative farms? Yeah. So, you know, here the guy in 1997, growing a business, I didn't know Paul Hawken. I just knew he was my, he was my hero uh, when I started the company. You know, lo and behold, all those years later, he was, in the Bay, he was a Bay Area person. So was I. We started being introduced to each other. And then as I started MEA, I just went to him and I said, hey, Paul, I know you have a book coming out in a year or two called Regeneration <laughs> about how we can solve the climate crisis in one generation by a bunch of different practices, including regenerating the planet and the soil, would you come and teach at MEA? And when he came there, that's when we started to talk about, well, what if we were to create these regenerative communities where there's a regenerative farm or ranch around which there were homes? And of course, our alums at that point said, hey, we love MEA for a week, but how can I live this way year round? And that's when the idea of our regenerative communities came around. And so we have one in Baja that's halfway constructed and sold out, and then we'll start having them in the Santa Fe, New Mexico area. So Paul had an influence on that. He's you know still a good, good now a very good close friend. I'm on the board of his Regeneration.org organization. So you're on all these boards. You still have properties in hospitality. I haven't been to Modern Elder Academy yet. There's a plan for me to come. I'm coming in, the, in about a year, so I'm excited come, about that. You're coming next summer as a teacher. Yeah. Take note, people, you know, and that's where it's going to start. Who knows where it's going to go from there. But you seem pretty hands on. And I'm just curious, you know, you're in your 60s now. Is that something that was intentional that you're going to get in here and get rolled up your sleeves and and really get into the grunt work of the whole thing? The sleeves are rolled up. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, well, first of all, in the early days of starting a business, I'm a big believer based on my own experience that being in the weeds is really important because mm. not just culture close to it. Yeah. If you want to try to change your culture 10 years after you started, man, is that hard, but the culture gets set early on. And I, and I define culture as what happens around here when the boss is not around. So culture is, is <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. And so culture is really interesting. And, and I believe that if you get the culture right on the front end, as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. So culture is really important. <laughs> As our systems and processes and 
and vision. So yeah, my, my sleeves are totally rolled up. And if things go right, within the next three to five years, I would love to be to a place where I'm a much more active sage in the community, as opposed to just the CEO who's really running the show. And I'm a very participative leader. So I have my, my leadership team has a lot of voice. So that means it's not just me. So if I got, you know, if I died tomorrow, the organization would be in challenge because so much of my halo of being on shows like yours or Rich Roll or Tim Ferriss or whatever has helped to fuel people knowing about MEA. But, you know, in the future, uh, it won't revolve around the halo of Chip as much. And it will be, what, frankly, our growing movement and community. Mm-hmm. We're doing something now called Generations Over Dinner, which is really fun. And this is the kind of stuff that's coming up from our alumni. And it's the mm-hmm. idea of getting Michael Hebb, who started Death Over Dinner, which is a global movement of people talking about the taboo topic of death around the dinner mm-hmm. table with a bunch of people who are friends. And you know they can pick the topics they want based upon what's on the website uh, for Death Over Dinner. Well, we're doing the same thing for Generations Over Dinner now because Michael Hebb is on our a faculty member and started this. And mm-hmm. so this is something that just sprouted out of MEA. And we're going to hopefully create a global movement of the generations talking around the dinner table about important topics, both personal topics as well as global topics. So I just appreciate the fact that if we get it right, we create the environment where there's no hero who has all of the great ideas in charge of making the magic happen. No, you built an environment where some of the best ideas are coming from all over the organization. So I love that, but I also, yeah, I don't want to work quite as hard as I am right now, <laughs> but I, I love it so much. It's a calling. You know, there's three kinds of relationships we can have with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. This is truly a calling. And therefore, I have a high pain threshold and I love what I do, but I also love having a diverse life. And, you know, the challenge in being an entrepreneur in the early days of a business is that you have to put the blinders on sometimes. So, you know, in my 60s, I don't want to do that as much as I did when I was younger. For those of us listening who have been to an Omega, Kripalu, and SLN. What can we expect from modern elder academy in relationship to like what you normally get at those yeah. kinds of places? Well, what I would say, so I know Esalen well, taught there for many years, been on the board, and I know Omega really well. What I would say, they have more comparability to each other and they're mm-hmm. the most different than what we are. The reason they're most different is because there's an ethos of what they stand for, but they are a place where great facilitators and teachers come and teach their program. And there's no curriculum. There's no Esalen curriculum. There's no, there's no Omega curriculum. You're just a teacher and you do your thing there. And yes, you eat meals at the same time and you might get a massage and maybe Esalen or Omega is providing you know, meditation or yoga to anybody who's in any workshop in the morning, but, but there's not a curriculum. Kripalu has a little bit of a curriculum for sure and much you know, even stronger ethos and it's you know, very much around the yoga lifestyle. And they publish things a lot more, say, than Esalen or Omega does. So we're more like Kripalu because we do publish things, white papers, ebooks, etc. But the biggest difference is that our curriculum at 
MEA is a preset curriculum around cultivating wisdom, reframing aging, helping people to become a beginner, a growth mindset, navigating midlife transitions, and regenerative living and purpose. So you come to a workshop, doesn't matter whether it's Matthew Ricard, who just taught there four months ago, mm-hmm. or Michael Fronti, who is a deep and close friend for a long time, famous you know, midlife musician, his most successful albums have been in his mid-50s. They're going to teach their stuff, but within their stuff is going to be a facilitator, MEA-trained facilitator, teaching our Midlife Wisdom School curriculum. And that's what makes it different. And the fact that it is focused on a particular life stage means that there's more of a sense of people when they're there feeling comfortable talking about what they're going through, maybe. So we believe that wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And so if you're you know, 52 years old and going through menopause and you're surrounded by a handful of other women that are going through menopause, while that's not the topic of your workshop, guess what? In your morning wisdom circle, that's coming up or that's going on in a small group conversation you're having. So what I'm proud of is that when you go to a place like Kripalu or Omega or Eslin, you have an amazing experience. I love all three places. But once you leave, you're not necessarily part of the community. You can be, but there's not an alumni association, for example. Mm-hmm. And so with 26 regional chapters around the world, man, do we have an alumni association. And that came from our alums. The alums are the ones who said, hey, we want this. So I think the program that's probably most similar to us is the Hoffman Project, Hoffman Institute, because their program actually has... We have a lot of people who've gone to their program and to our program. And their program is more psychological from childhood. Uh, I mean, and family systems. Ours is definitely much less of that, but it is psychological. So the Hoffman Institute is probably more comparable to us. And to get that certification, the, the mindset management certificate, is that after one week or do they have to come back and do several nope, courses? It, one week will do you. And frankly, if you do an eight-week online course, we have an online course on purpose, and we have an online course on transitions, you can also get that. So you get the certificate either way. But we've had people who have gone to Baja six times and then six different workshops. Yeah. And because we got Esther Perel coming next next year. I mean, Esther, mm-hmm. I mean, she's amazing. And Dan Butner, who coined the, the idea of the blue zones. Russ Hudson, who's probably the most famous Enneagram teacher in the world. You and I have a semi-personal relationship. Are a lot of these people, the Matthew Ricards, Esperel, so they coming from you getting on the phones and emails and working deals and everything work in the it, background? Work it, work it. You know, it's, it's both. But I didn't know Esther or Matthew, but I knew that there was a Enlightenment Stupa being built in Pescadero, right where, where our retreat center is. And I was a big fan of the Lama who I got I became good friends with. And he said he wanted to bring Matthew for the time when they were going to have the stupa opening. And I was like, well, what if we could have him teach at MEA? And, and Matthew doesn't teach much anymore. And, but because the Lama said he really believed in MEA, he'd actually not, he's an MEA alum himself. He, he suggested it. But we you know, had people like Richard War, famous Christian mystic. He didn't come as a teacher. He came as a student at 78, 79 years old, having written 50 books. So we've had you know, the street cred of MEA out there is, I think it's attracting a lot of these people. So like Blake McCoskey, you know, uh, founder and CEO, Tom Shoes came as a student 
And, and the thing he said at the end of the first, at the end of this week was he said, this is like Hoffman Institute, but it's for a specific life stage. And he says, that's what's brilliant about it. And now he's teaching at MEA. So he's teaching in an online purpose course. And he has a workshop this fall called Entrepreneurship at Any Age in December. So I don't know. It's just sort of some weird thing that this guy named Chip, who's the weirdo when he was a kid, has come up with now. But the thing that's most exciting about it, like, is... Harvard and Stanford and University of Chicago and Notre Dame are all calling us because they're doing their own version of what we're doing, but they're doing year-long programs, very expensive, small group of people. So like they're like the Mercedes-Benz and we're like the Volkswagen. And we're sort of doing something scalable and we offer lots of scholarships and financial aid and things like that to have socioeconomic diversity. And so what I love is that here we are, this, you know, this institution is created by non-academics. And we have these great institutions coming to us and saying, we want to learn what you're learning. Let's collaborate. We'll tell you what we're learning. Let's see what you're learning. And they need to do that because colleges and universities in the U.S., unless they're the famous ones I just said, they're in trouble. Demographically, they're in trouble. You know, everything's gone online. I mean, it, it is a bad financial model that they have to figure out. And so this disruption that needs to happen in the higher education world is they need to say, you know, what if we actually shifted our focus from just young people to also having one-year certificates for someone in midlife who's going to do a gap year, and they're going mm -hmm. to come back and train or learn or study a, this topic that they didn't do in college because they thought it wasn't practical. And now at age 50, they're like, you know what? I'm going to go do that. So universities need to do that. And I think 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, we'll see more of that. And I am very proud that MEA will be have had some fingerprints on that process of those universities getting really smart. And let me be clear, some of these universities have been doing this before we opened our doors five years ago. But the vast majority of universities are just starting to jump on this bandwagon. Last couple of questions. I want to kind of go more personal now. So you were 2022. You're writing prolifically. I think you have two books in the works right now. And two books in the works and a daily blog. Daily blog. You're walking 10,000 steps, you're surfing, <laughs> you're learning Spanish. How do you find time to do all that? Like, what's your person, when you wake up in the morning, like, how are you prioritizing your day around running this institution yeah. that's also requiring a lot of your attention? Well, let me say that there, I have a, a deep discipline about my sleep patterns, partly because I'm, I historically was not a good sleeper and I had trained myself to become a good sleeper. And so I go to bed. You know, no matter whether it's weekday or weekend, I try to go to bed between 8.30 and 9.30. If I can be in bed at 8.30, I'm happier. That gives me 45 minutes to read. And then I'd like to be starting to go to sleep by 9.15. And then I'll get up in the morning around 4.30. I, you know, in a past life, I was clearly a monk or a farmer. And I wake up and I do my meditation. And then, man, from like 5 o'clock till 8 o'clock in the morning, my most powerful time in the morning. My writer wakes up before my editor. So it's when I flow, writing-wise, creativity-wise, and sometimes just catching up on emails. And then after that, it's like now we're in Zoom world, you know, like Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. So it's hard to do that in the middle of the day. And I'm usually wiped out at nighttime to do it at night. So that's my pattern. Yeah, when I'm, like, I'm flying to Israel tomorrow, my sleep patterns are going to be all kind of weird, and I'll be there for a week. And so that's for, it's a, basically a fun trip, not a fun trip, but it's... It's a family trip that is fun, but it's also 
preparing for someone to pass away there, you know, and who's in family and I'm going to be offline for a week. So I, I think boundaries are really important. One of the things we did at the start of this year was like, we said to all of our employees, okay, define your boundaries for us, get your boss to believe in them and agree to them. And then let's track your boundaries, how you're doing with them quarterly. And by year end, if you have kept true to your boundaries this year, you will get a 5% bonus. Whatever you made for the year, if you made $100,000 this year, you get a $5,000 bonus because you kept your boundaries. Now, how many companies do that? <laughs> it's sort of a crazy idea. But what it did is it shifted the energy from people a year ago saying, oh man, am I burned out, which most companies are hearing over and over again and say like, oh, well, let's create these rules and this. No, actually let's give agency to our leaders and our employees, like create your boundaries. Mm. Tell us what they are. Let's put all of the boundaries into one document so that our administrative team, when they're actually trying to schedule appointments, can make sure that if you're on the East Coast and you don't want to call after six o'clock East Coast time, and a lot of us are West Coast people, you know, that means no meetings with that person after three o'clock for those on the West Coast. So it took a little bit of adaptation that's been spectacular. So I would say more and more companies need to think that way because we live in an era where we have no boundaries. We have no boundaries. We have phones, et cetera, that, you know, we're are incessant. We've trapped life and work in such a way that <laughs> this is not a smoothie we're talking about. This is an unsmoothie. And to get smoothie, you sometimes have to have the boundary. That's why the posture and the retreats are so valuable. Silence, deep meditation for extended periods of time, and being off gadgets. Final question. How has your idea of success evolved over all of these years? Where is it now for you? You know, in some ways in the early days, it was like find a consumer need and fill it. And now mm-hmm. it's find a societal need and fill it. So I've moved from being the for-profit entrepreneur to the social entrepreneur. So I'm, fi- I'm hopefully addressing a societal need. I have not paid myself a dime in the five years that I've been doing this, which is perfectly fine because I feel that committed to it. I'm not doing it for the money. I also would say that the five words that Eric Erickson, a developmental psychologist, suggested of I am what survives me is much more the definition of success for me today. You know, I think if you'd asked me at 25, I would never have said this, but if but it was true, my success was not I am what survives me. I am what you think of me. <laughs> mm, so your, so opinions, your opinions, your perception, your admiration, that's what success is. Today is I am what survives me. And that means I better focus on things that are enduring, that are not just based upon the cult of personality, that are meaningful and important for the future. So, yeah, I think that's what success is for me today. It's like that Native American saying, every decision you need to consider the seven generations ahead seven of generations. So yeah. probably when you're writing, you're thinking about that as well, right? Like how are people seven generations going to receive well, this? What can I take from this? For sure. And I have two sons with a lesbian couple, you know, Eli and Ethan who are 10 and seven. And I think about it for them, especially things that are planetary and global. I mean, like what world are they inheriting as well? So it's not just even sort of more ephemerally to like the world, but it's like in my family as well. Beautiful, man. Well, Chip, we've come to the end of the tunnel. <laughs> we've uh, seen the light. <laughs> well, that is, do you know that, wait, did, we, did we talk about this? So the, the, the working title of my next book, it isn't done yet because my literary agent's working with publishers. It's called The Light at the Middle of the Tunnel. 
Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what's funny is my podcast for the first hundred episodes was called At the End of the Tunnel. So that was like one of my sign offs as we've come to the end of the tunnel. That's that's fascinating. I love it. I love it. The middle Uh, of the tunnel. I love it. Awesome, man. Well, man, I just want to acknowledge you for, I mean, geez, all of the service work that you've offered to us to the world everything you're leaving behind everything that you're representing right now you've you've been an inspiration to me even more so since i started doing the deep dive into your your backstory and then getting a chance to have this conversation i feel honored to call you a friend and i look forward to again i'm going to be coming down there to teach but i'm also look forward looking forward just to connecting with you. I was down there in January facilitating a New Year's retreat, but that was back during the, I think the Delta variant or something. So yeah. I was trying to be very cautious about not exposing myself. Have you had COVID yet? October 2020. So I'm vulnerable. OG. I, 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 yeah, I had, the, I had the early OG. Exactly. So we'll see. You know, I'm careful about that. But yeah, I love, love the idea that you were going to hang out more and I just have a lot of admiration for you. I, I really believe that all of us are enlightened witnesses for each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having observed you and the work that you're doing and the way you do it, I just, I, I really admire you. I mean, I, and I actually admire, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to say admire because I made it sound like a bad thing, but what I, I salute you. I really feel like you're doing the kind of work that we need more people doing what you're doing and especially more men of color. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to my interview with Chip Conley. Chip has written several books. Many have become New York Times bestsellers. You can get those books at his website at Chip Conley or on Amazon or anywhere else books are sold. And you can get those books on his website, chipconley.com or on Amazon or anywhere else books are sold. You can also follow his blog at chipconley.com and Conley spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y. And you can get more information about the Modern Elder Academy at modernelderacademy.com. If you happen to look at their website and look at their list of workshops, you will see yours truly offering a course there on spiritual minimalism. So definitely check that out. And in any case, make sure to follow Chip for more inspiration on social media at Chip Conley. I'll drop links to everything else that he and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the Light Watkins show, we've got an incredible archives of other interviews with luminaries like Ed Milet, Ava DuVernay, Saul Williams, Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share the backstory of how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter such as people who've overcome financial struggles, health challenges, people who've taken leaps of faith. All of that is at lightwatkins.com slash show. There's a drop-down menu at the top of the screen. You can also watch these podcast interviews on my YouTube channel. You go to Light Watkins Podcasts under YouTube, and you'll see a list of all of the episodes. You can put a face to a story. And if you want to hear the raw, unedited version of the podcast, we post that in my online community called Be Happiness Insiders. And there you could listen to all the false starts and all the chit chat before and and after the episodes and the mistakes. So if you're into that kind of thing, you'll find that at thehappinessinsiders.com. You'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge. 
which has an 80% completion rate. So once you start taking that challenge, there's a better than even chance that you will become a daily meditator within the span of a few months. And one very easy way to support this show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly by just glancing down at your device. And on the Apple Podcast app, just go to the name of the podcast, click it, and then scroll down past the seven or eight previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. If you like this episode, if you found it inspirational, click that star all the way on the right and you will leave us a five-star rating. If you want to go the extra mile and leave a review, I recommend just entering in the names of the two or three episodes that you found particularly inspiring. So when the next person is looking for a podcast that has inspiring content and they look at the reviews, then they will have a really good indication of which conversations to start with. So anyway, thank you in advance for whatever review or rating you leave us. Really appreciate it. It goes a long way. And hopefully I will see you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.